Well, good morning. I think I'm good. <laughs> Pardon me, because I'm sure I'll be fiddling with this as, as we go. Uh, there's another church that I, I speak at from time to time that has an earpiece, and uh, I fiddle with that one too. So that's, that's pretty much common for me. I see several familiar faces this morning. I looked at my notes. I, I try to keep track of where I preach and when. And it was a year ago in February that I was here with you folks. So it's been a while. So hello, I'm Rob. Uh, I hail from Pleasantville Assembly uh, with Pastor Brad Price, which many of you I'm sure know and remember. Um, he says hello to, to all you folks. And uh, I am a, we'll say a, a a part-time ministry person. I don't do this vocationally. I just do what, what people ask of me and what God asks of me. So I'm here this morning and I want to share just a few things with you. Uh, thoughts have been on my mind and on my heart. Uh, I like to listen to messages from, from different speakers and read books from various authors and I have my favorites of both. Uh, but I I guess we can't really do any better than reading the words and the messages of, of the greatest speaker and teacher who ever walked the earth, of course, Jesus Christ, huh? And I want to look at a, a segment of one of Jesus' sermons, if you will, uh, which is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, beginning with chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7, if you're, you're not familiar uh, many people refer to this, this as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So let's turn there this morning and look at the text, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And I'm only going to read through verse 12 this morning. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray for a minute before we begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand in this pulpit and minister to your precious people. Father, I take this job seriously, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning from your word, that we would glean wisdom and really get to the heart of what you were trying to say, Jesus, on that hillside all those years ago. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The title of my message today is Backwards, and you'll see why here in a moment. But the eight blessings, or blessed ours that I just read, are commonly referred to as what? Beatitudes, yeah. And last night before, uh, when we were putting my, my daughter to bed, I read this passage. I said, this is what Daddy's going to be talking about tomorrow. 
and we didn't know why they were called the Beatitudes. We discussed it, and I'm sure there's a reason, but we didn't know. But we'll, maybe next time I come back, I'll tell you why they were the Beatitudes and what Beatitude means. But these foundational utterances of the New Testament doctrine correspond to the Ten Commandments that Moses brought to the people from God in the Old Testament. But they're very different from the thou shalt and thou shalt nots of the Old Covenant, aren't they? As Moses declared the old law on Mount Sinai, so Jesus set forth the new law on a mountain. The qualities cited here by Jesus are the very antithesis of what we generally consider desirable and legitimate pursuits in life. Different kind of than what, what we think of as successful. Jesus declared later in Luke 6:15 that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What we think of as success isn't necessarily what God thinks of as success. Jesus was addressing people here on the side of the mountain that were under the rule of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire virtues were very different than what were at, was outlined here. In the Roman Empire, virtus meant manliness. And too often it was military valor rather than moral courage that was emphasized. A little bit of a different, little bit of a different message than what Jesus is portraying here. But Jesus exalted a new type of ethic. He proclaimed a startling, startlingly different set of values. He put the highest premium on things of the spirit. And that's what kind of gave me the idea for the, the title of this message, Backwards. What Jesus was bringing to the people was backwards thinking from what Rome taught. So as the scene unfolds in the, the passage we just read, we find Jesus and his magnetic personality was in full force. He didn't ascend the mountainside to get away from people. He moved to a position where they could hear him better. The Bible doesn't indicate how many people were there on this day, but it could have been thousands. We read two different times in Scripture that Jesus fed thousands. He's fed 5,000 at one setting and 4,000 at another setting. And that was just men. That wasn't counting women and children. So there's a very real possibility that Jesus was speaking to to 10,000 people at, at this message. And, and this is just me and maybe my imagination running away a little bit, but I like to think that there was something supernatural about Jesus' voice. And, and what I mean by that is the way that it carried. Because if you can imagine 10,000 people, I, I looked it up, and, and I don't know, has anyone ever been over to Altoona to Blair County Ballpark where the curve plays? Blair County Ballpark holds 7,210 people. Now, can you imagine standing there on home plate without their microphones and all their high-tech speaker equipment and sound equipment? Can you imagine standing there and trying to address 7,210 people just with your voice? Probably wouldn't go too well, would it? But Jesus somehow was able to verbally communicate to the crowds of the people like this. And it was customary for rabbis to sit down when they taught people. The King James Version says that, he opened up his mouth and taught them. His teaching was an intentional act. You know, he was, he was something he was wanting to address the people. And he was addressing his disciples, but the crowd wasn't eavesdropping. He had something for everyone on this day. So Jesus begins to pass along a recipe for a blessed life. And when he begins to talk about being blessed, I'm sure people sat up and took notice. Have you ever been up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep, you turn on the TV, and there's infomercials for what? 
selling real estate and doing all these things to make money, you know, just send your $99.95 in and, and we'll send you a book and you'll be a real estate tycoon and you'll be wealthy and you'll have an in-ground pool like this guy does and everything else. But when they, he began talking about wealth and prosperity and a blessed life, people probably sat up and said, hey, all right, sign me up for this. So the word that Jesus used for blessed was makarios and the root word of makarios is mac m-a-k and it indicates larger of long duration he was talking about the blessed life it's an adjective suggesting happy supremely blessed a condition in which congratulations are in order you're doing so well that your friends are all sending you likes and commenting on facebook you are you have got it figured out the people probably had visions of health and wealth and ultimate success and a life on easy street a while back, I taught a class at, at Pleasantville Assembly called Money Matters. And really, it was an outreach to the community. We advertised it in the community. Anyone who wanted to come in, um, you know, we weren't throwing a Bible at them or, or, you know, making them sing with us or anything. It was just a way to reach into the community. And it was a biblical look at how to manage finances in a responsible manner. First night was really well attended. And that first night, I kind of got the impression that people thought it was a guide to some kind of get-rich scheme. Because after hearing on that first night that financial freedom takes hard work, dedication, determination, a few of them didn't come back for night two. <laughs> I didn't have a recipe other than the things I just mentioned. So flashing back to Jesus... The people were on the edge of their seat or on the edge of their rock or whatever they were sitting on. And they have their notebooks open, papyrus and quill pens in hand, and they're ready to take down notes. How are we going to be blessed? Here's the key. Waiting to hear the secrets to joy and success from the wise teacher. And if you can picture it, Jesus begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what did he say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I must be getting an echo here where I'm standing because I, I think he just said, I'll be happy when I'm sad. Is that what he said? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's it, I'm out of here. If you can imagine, probably some of them got up and walked out, you know, out, wherever out is, into another part of the field or something, because this wasn't what they were thinking they were going to hear. They thought they were going to hear of Rome's virtue and manliness and how to conquer your enemies, win friends and influence people. I'm having some fun here, but I would imagine some people did leave. Just like the Money Matters course wasn't a get-rich scheme, neither were Jesus' Beatitudes. A common tone pervades them all. They all depend on some excellency of character. To a large extent, the Beatitudes are facets from the character of Christ himself, aren't they? Do you think what they were hearing was backwards from what they thought? from what they were taught and what they were expecting to hear. People use the term paradigm shift. It's a different way of looking at things. So this morning I want to look at a couple of these blessed stars and maybe turn some of our thinking on its head and allow us to grasp what Jesus was teaching on that mountainside so long ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who are conscious, conscious of their spiritual need. 
and casting aside all self-dependence, seek God's grace. Have you ever been down on your luck? Been down to maybe your last dollar? We're down to zero dollars? What happens? We get humble real quick, don't we? We have to look somewhere other than ourselves for our resources and provision. We have to ask for things. Do you ever have to borrow the dollar and six cents for the two hot dog special at Sheets? That's how you know you've hit rock bottom. <laughs> you've got to borrow that dollar six to get those two. Don't you dare put cheese on it. It's 50 cents more. <clears throat> but what happens when we get a few dollars to our name? We become self-reliant. We can pay our own way, thank you very much. We don't have to ask others for things. Maybe a little bit of pride creeps in. And we start to think, hey, I got this, I'm good. You think maybe there's a little bit of a parallel between our financial bank account and our spiritual bank account. But we can't pay our own way spiritually, even if we wanted to. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Jesus made the purchase. He made the transaction. Jesus is saying here, the sooner we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we have a debt that we can in no way settle, the sooner we can walk into our inheritance. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the rest of that verse is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wouldn't mind living in a kingdom, would you? I'd be happy living in my own house if someone else footed the bill for the repairs. Summer greeted me this year. I turned a central air on in the house and nothing happened. Well, something happened. The, the blower blew, but no cold air came out. So, lots of money later, it's cool in my house again. I'm happy with my house. Just, you know, if God, if you could foot the bill, and he does, he provides. Uh, I just was talking this morning. A, a few weeks ago, uh, a deer decided to, to hurl itself into the side of my truck. My truck's in the shop now, getting fixed. You know, I'd be, I'm happy with my truck if someone else would foot the bills. <laughs> so I wouldn't mind living in a kingdom. And it's intriguing that poverty of spirit comes first in the description of the blessed life that Jesus was portraying. Lowliness is the beginning of holiness, and we can make no real progress in life without it. That's a powerful statement. Those who would be near to God, great in the kingdom of heaven, must be like their king, unaffectedly humble, we must lay aside earthly ambitions and be willing to take the lowest place. The heart that is emptied of self is filled with Christ. I find that to be true in my own life. Second, blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn are not necessarily people in bereavement, but those who experience the sorrow of repentance. Have you ever come to that point in your life and you realize, man, I've messed up to the point that I can't fix this? And that's where we receive Christ and say, Jesus, I, I come humble and broken without anything. Could you take my life and make something out of it? It seems like a paradox, a contradiction, doesn't it? Sorrow and joy are opposites. They're at the opposite ends of the spectrum. But we Christians who live under the shadow of the cross must learn the blessedness of mourning. Let me ask you something, and this is something to ponder for a minute and nothing to, I'm, ask, I'm not asking for any response, but what breaks your heart? There are plenty of sorrow and challenges in life, 
Loss brings sorrow, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a relationship, a job, the list can go on. But I'm not talking about that. Most of those things that I just mentioned, we recover from those losses eventually, at least to some degree. What I mean is, are we truly affected to the point of sorrow and mourning for the condition of the world that's around us? Now, if you don't have anything to get stirred up about, just get on Facebook for a few minutes. You'll get there, right? I have been practicing what I call social media distancing, and it has done a world of good for my soul. <laughs> Not as much as I should, because <laughs> I pick up my phone before I get mad. And like, Why would I even look at that? But there's so much that angers and frustrates me as a Christian. Innocent lives being taken, whether they're unborn or just born lives. But as a Christian, i got to ask myself, has my anger, my frustration prompted me to mourning, to action, to prayer. We're not going to look at it today, but immediately after the, the passage I just read, Jesus' message that goes to salt and light. He begins talking about salt and light. I'm not going to preach that message today, but salt and light change their surroundings, don't they? You folks up here on the mountain appreciate salt in the wintertime, don't you? If something happens when you put that salt down on the road or on the sidewalk, it changes things. Suddenly you can walk without breaking your leg. And light, when you go into a dark room and throw on the switch, what happens? Darkness is dispelled. Salt and light make a difference. But the blessedness of mourning is the comforting for that mourning. Maybe the reason we are comforted is because our mourning prompts us to action. And God honors that action and does something about the situation that we're broken about. And then we're comforted. Just a thought. Third, blessed are the meek. We don't hear much about meekness these days, do we? I imagine in most folks' minds, meek equals weak. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, 6 to 10. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. What a beautiful picture of meekness in action, huh? Meekness does not equate to weakness, but get this, but rather controlled strength. There's a powerful thought. The word carries the ideas of humility and self-discipline. Meek does not mean timid, but rather humble and trustful. It's a willingness to take wrong patiently. It's a gentleness in dealing with others. It means accepting God's will rather than asserting one's rights. We hear a lot about rights these days, don't we? Popular saying is everybody has a right, but nobody has a responsibility. <laughs> The meek man is not given to retaliate injuries, but rather to forgive. 
it's one thing to accept uh, a wrongdoing or an injury or something when you have no choice. If you're overpowered, there's not really much you can do. But when it's within your power to retaliate and get even or get back at somebody and don't, that's meekness. It's not weakness. It's controlled strength. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness means a life fully conformed to the will of God in thought, word, worship, and act. Well, I could give an altar call right now on that, on that statement alone, and we'd have plenty to pray about, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? At least I would. Let's read that again. A life fully conformed to the will of God in thought, word, worship, and act. In thought, what things occupy our mind? And I'm not saying we necessarily fill our minds with evil things, but what about worry? What about anxiety and doubt and fear? Those are every bit as toxic to our minds as, as, you know, maybe things we think of as harmful and garbage that we put in our minds. In word, is God pleased with our speech? Both the words that we use and the topics that we talk about. In worship, there's more to worship than coming into God's house on a Sunday morning, singing some songs and raising our hands. I like, it to, I like to call it a lifestyle of worship. Who or what do we exalt in our everyday lives? In action, if I didn't tell people I'm a Christian, would they still know? Well, that's a challenge. That steps on my toes some days. Not that I'm a heathen, but would my family know behind closed doors? Would my coworkers know? Would the lady at the checkout counter at the grocery store know? How about the guy who cut me off in traffic? Would he know that I was a Christian if I didn't pull over and say, hey, I'm a Christian. God bless you. Thanks for taking off my bumper. Do we hunger and thirst for this kind of life? Blessed are the merciful. To whom are we to be merciful? The helpless, the undeserving, those who have wronged us. But the thoughtless sinner who lives in wealth and luxury is an object of the Christian's pity as much as the sick and the helpless poor. It's about an eternal mindset, kingdom vision, if you will. Mark 8, 36. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? If we show no mercy, or if we show mercy for no other reason, it should be for the second half of this beatitude. What's it say? Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. If that doesn't sound familiar, it should, because Jesus goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In the same measure that we dole out mercy to others, it will be measured to us. I don't know about you, but there are days that I need a lot of mercy. There are days I need a lot of mercy from my wife, from my coworkers, from people around me. I guess if you want to look at it as a bank account, if you don't deposit mercy into the lives of those around you whenever there's a day comes around that you need to make a mercy withdrawal you might come up in insufficient funds huh blessed are the pure in heart see the pharisees that were hearing jesus teaching were big on legal purity wash your hands before you eat which actually i think that's probably a pretty good one especially these days but they, they borderline into the absolute, or they, they ventured into the absolute ridiculous, uh, some of the laws that the Pharisees expected the people to adhere to. 
but Jesus was, was looking beyond the external into the heart. One of the most sobering bits of scripture is in Matthew 9, 4. It says, and Jesus knowing their thoughts. That would absolutely horrify me. And it should absolutely horrify me because guess what? Jesus knows my thoughts. But I can't imagine having Jesus right there beside you and him looking at you thinking, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> I know what's going on up here. Like, oh, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> but Jesus can, he knows our thoughts. But Jesus has a way of looking past the facade and, and getting to the heart of the matter. One of my favorite of God's statements is in the Old Testament, and it's found in 1 Samuel 16. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go there this morning, but let me, let me paint the picture for you. Samuel, God's prophet, has been sent to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. This is to be Saul's successor. So he goes and he meets with him, and Jesse comes, or uh, Jesse's first son, Eliab, comes along, and I'd imagine Jesse has them all lined up in a row from, from oldest to youngest. Um, back then, there was a lot of emphasis put on your age and your position, the family, the oldest son, the next oldest, the next oldest, and so on. So there's Eliab, and boy, he looked kingly. He was probably tall, taller than I am. He probably had a head full of hair more than I have. He probably had muscles more than I have. And he probably had a kingly physique less than what I have. He probably looked like king material. This is, and, and, and I would imagine Samuel thought, oh, this is easy. This is the guy right here. Let's just anoint him and we'll be gone. But he wasn't the guy, was he? It wasn't Eliab. Ultimately, Samuel goes the whole way down the line and God is telling him to pass up a number of fine-looking kingly specimens they were king material in Samuel's eyes. But right after Samuel saw Eliab, God spoke this to him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Can I pause here and thank God that he looks at my heart? Because I can tell you there's many times and many days from the outside I look like a mess. And boy, if God looked at me on those days and just discarded me based on my external appearance and my looks and how I'm acting that day, it'd be very easy for him to just brush me aside and say, ah, we'll use someone else. But God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. But God looks at my heart, God looks at your heart. And I want to encourage you today, if you've messed up in some way, you've not gone beyond the bounds of God's grace. Jesus died for each one of us. You're still in bounds. You're still pertinent. You're still relevant. God still has a plan for you. But the call to blessing for those with a pure heart isn't a call for the perfect. It's a call for the willing. So God's calling to the willing who will step up. And as God shines the searchlight of his truth, his purity into our hearts, we can remove that which is displeasing to him. A few times over the years, I've taught through a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's by a guy named Robert Boyd Munger. It's, I've seen it in a little booklet form. And if you have an interest in that subject of purity of heart and, and changing your life and your heart into something more God-like, I encourage you to pick it up. I can give it to you in PDF format. It's the, the license restrictions are off of it. So I have it in a PDF format. Get in touch with me, and I will, uh, I'll get it to you. But over the years, I, I've, 
I taught through that little book to, to teen classes and young adult classes. But in this little book, Munger talks about how when Christ finds things in our hearts that are displeasing to him, we must be willing to yield our will to his and toss those things out. See, the heart is very important to God. I just was listening to a message within the past week about uh, some of the things that science has now discovered about our heart, about our heart has, and I'm going to butcher it if I try to explain it, but our heart has a brain in it. It has a, it has a mind. So whenever Jesus talks about the heart, it's not necessarily the organ in our chest that's pumping blood. There's more to what Jesus is, is, is sharing there. Like I said, I can't get into it. It wasn't my message, and I don't, I'm not even familiar enough with it to plagiarize it. Uh, but David wrote in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's been a prayer of mine so many times, often daily. In Psalm 139.23, Search me, God, and know my heart. So David's acknowledging, I can't do it on my own, Lord. I need you to take that spotlight. You know, us, us rednecks around here have gone spotting a few times and are trucking our million candle power spotlight and we're out shining the light on the deer in the field. And imagine that. Imagine Jesus coming in with his pure and perfect spotlight and searchlight and shining it in our heart, into our mind, into those dark recesses where those things are that we need to change in order to be pleasing to God. I urge you today to do a heart checkup and ask God what, what might be in yours that he'd like changed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The New King James Version translation says they shall be called sons of God. The thought of being sons of means having the nature of. I am the son of Alan Mock. I have the nature of him. I resemble him in looks. I have his work ethic. I'd like to think I do anyways. I tell his same lame dad jokes. And as I age, I find myself telling the same stories over and over and over again, just like my dad. <laughs> Things that drove me nuts whenever I was, we would go out and work. I, my dad, he's retired now. Uh, he was a maintenance guy at, at Westinghouse, Bedford Materials, but he also had his own drywall business for, I don't know, longer than I've been alive. And uh, we'd be out on a job, and he'd get to, to gabbing with the homeowners. And I'm like 16, and I just want to go home. You know, he got me out of bed early on a Saturday. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to hold up my end of the board, get the drywall hung, go home and the air conditioning. But Dad would always, he had a whole repertoire. He was like a stand-up comedian where he'd go through these whole, this whole series of jokes. And you know what? I was, I was in a, uh, a, a customer service type job with computers the last several years, and I found myself doing the same thing. Different customers tell my same stack of lousy jokes. But I am, I am the son of, of my dad. So if we are sons of God or children of God to make this gender neutral, we are to have his nature, and his nature is that of a peacemaker. Let me tell you about peacemakers. And use this as a mental checklist as I read them. If, we, if I'm a peacemaker, I avert quarrels, harmonize differences, strengthen friendships, avoid petty bickering, I'm going to have to get rid of Facebook, I create a pleasant atmosphere, work for a sympathetic understanding between groups of people. 
I'm not speaking for any of you. For me, I'm saying, ouch. They say everyone brings joy to a room. Some people when they enter it, some people when they exit it. (laughs) But God, if we're to be like him, God help us to be peacemakers. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the Beatitudes begin with the kingdom of heaven and they end with the kingdom of heaven. Now the subject of persecution, I don't know if we in America know a whole lot about persecution as Christians in America. Maybe our day's coming, I don't know, I won't comment on that. But we don't know a whole lot about persecution. I mentioned earlier, righteousness means right living. Let me ask you, have you ever lost something or given something up because you're living right? Maybe it's when you first got saved. Maybe as you, you make your way through life, the Holy Spirit points something out in you as God shines that searchlight into your life. He zeroes in on something that you need to change. Uh, a relationship that's not right. A job that's not right. Uh, uh, maybe we miss out on a, a promotion or a, a favorite pastime. God notices those things that we give up for him. And he sees them. And for our efforts, big or small, he gives us the title deed to a piece of his kingdom. And I'm likely to think it's worth it. I'd like to have a piece of God's kingdom. So let me conclude with this. God's blessing rests on character. Character character will be sure to decide conduct. If our character is right, then our conduct will be too. I think it's Carrie Newhoff that says, you know, spend spend 90% of your time on your character and 10% on your competency. I'm probably butchering that quote, but you get the idea. Work on your conduct. Your competency, God will, will bless your competency as you work on your character and your conduct. Make the tree good and the fruit coming from it will be right. And I want to close with one more passage of scripture, Romans 8. 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed or ruled by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That'd be a good one for our devotions this week, wouldn't it? One to ponder in the prayer closet and think about. But I can't say it any better than God's word, so let's pray. We'll conclude. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these few moments that we spent together looking at your word together. I thank you, Jesus, for these beatitudes, as they're called for this way of living that is contrary and different to what our world around us even today is successful, where we're told that we need to be aggressive and and backbiting and opinionated and claw our way to the top of some sort of ladder to be successful in life, to have the latest and greatest in in cars and, and homes and toys and gadgets and so many pressures our society places upon us. But Jesus, your your method, your way of right living, of blessedness is very different. 
So I pray as we go about our week this week, we would reflect on this passage of Scripture, upon the words that I shared this morning, that we would be challenged to step higher in you, to go further in you, and to be more of what you want us to be, Lord Jesus. Help us to make you proud, God, to serve this community, to be different. Lord, if this society, this nation that we're living in right now needs anything, it needs hope. And you, Jesus, are hope. Help us to not hide that hope and keep it to ourselves, but to share it freely and openly. And help us to point to you, Lord, is my prayer. I pray your blessing upon Pastor McGee as he is with his family and enjoying some time off. Bring him back to his home safely. Bless this church as they minister to Wimber. Meet every need, Lord God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all very much for your patience and kindness and having me here today.